Well, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the false expectations Israel had of the Messiah. False expectations Israel had of the Messiah, that he was going to set up his kingdom, overthrow Rome, elevate Israel to the dominant nation, and usher in an unparalleled season of peace and prosperity. And so they had part of the story right, but they didn't have the entire story. Last week we looked at how when we have expectations that are unmet, we respond with disappointment, anger, we feel maybe betrayed, let down. And when we have these feelings and we're responding unbiblically to circumstances in life, we need to hit the pause button and say, what is going on in my heart? Why am I acting this way? What did I think I should get that I'm not getting? And to repent of the ungodly behavior and then renew your mind. So repent, renew your mind, go to the scriptures and say, God, where am I not thinking the way you think? Where am I not seeing the way you see? Where have I set up unrealistic expectations, or maybe you have realistic expectations and somebody should be meeting those expectations, and yet they're not. And we need to understand we have to extend grace to others because we need grace as well. Beloved, believe me when I tell you, you are the source of many people's unmet expectations. I am the source of many people's unmet expectations. It's just not other people who are letting you down. We let down others as well. And in the Christian community, we have a great message to show the world. We extend grace and mercy. We confront in love, speaking truth in love, hoping to restore a brother or a sister. But first, we always must confess our own sin and confess where we've dropped the ball. Jesus said, remove the log from your own eye before you go to your brother to remove the speck from his. Thirdly, we said last week, now you're ready to replace your behavior with godly behavior. Um, I shared with you my professor who told me 90% of my counseling would deal with unmet expectations, and he's been proven correct. And he used to illustrate it this way. He, He just said, remember this, people who think life should come in up here are disappointed when life actually comes in here. And yet, biblically, life ought, we ought to expect life to come in here. And God brings life in here. And you see, whatever that gap is, is going to determine how we respond. If we think the gap is a huge negative deficit, we're going to respond with discontent, disappointment, anger, frustration, tantrums. Someone let me know this morning that, yes, the tantrums continue. When you're an adult, they just look differently. They're socially acceptable tantrums. And uh, we go find a private place to go kind of kick and scream when we're upset. If we're under control of our emotions, sometimes it just comes right out in front of everyone, and that's kind of embarrassing. But if the gap is this huge, wow, I don't deserve anything, and look what God's given me. 
I deserve condemnation and judgment. He gives me grace and forgiveness. I deserve the lowliest spot. He says I'm going to reign with Christ forever. I get to be a co-heir. And that's the sermon in a nutshell today. That to live in the kingdom of God, you must see the kingdom of God as God sees it. To live in the kingdom of God, you must see the kingdom of God as God sees it. And God's going to teach us this lesson this morning through the text, through none other than a blind man. A blind man. A blind man is going to teach us how to see the kingdom. So for all of us who are seeing, we need a blind man, according to God, to teach us this lesson. So let me introduce you to Bartimaeus. Mark 10, 46. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he's calling you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Well, this story comes right on the heels of James and John, the chosen ones, the seeing ones, the ones in Jesus' inner circle, also having a request for Jesus, and yet demanding that they sit on Jesus' left and right in his kingdom. And so certainly Mark, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, has set up this contrast for us. Very deliberate, very obvious contrast. And we'll see what's going on here, but as always, the application is to put yourself into the scene and say, what is God teaching me? Whatever he's teaching them is the same thing the Bible has to be teaching me. Whatever it meant to the original audience, it must mean to us as well. You may apply it a little differently to your life, Yet, the main lesson has to be transcendent. It must transcend time. This is how we read the Bible. This is how we study the Bible, interpret the Bible, and apply the Bible to our lives. How many saw the Ken Ham-Bill Nye debate? Okay. We had a great crowd here Tuesday to come and see something that was not a debate. It was not a debate. It wasn't formatted to be a debate. It was two opposing worldviews given an opportunity to explain their worldview. And there were so many times when we all wanted them to face each other and have to answer each other's questions. But that's not the way it was formatted. So we were all expecting a debate, and our expectations were unmet. So a lot of us were disappointed. We thought Ken could have done better. 
And yet he did exactly what he intended to do, which was to contrast two worldviews. Al Mohler, the, uh, Dr. Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary, the largest seminary in the Southern Baptist Convention to which we belong, um, and a great spokesperson for evangelical Christianity, uh, helped me see what I couldn't see that every time Bill Nye could not answer a question, questions such as, where does human consciousness come from? said, we don't know. Science doesn't have the answer to that question yet. I don't think science will ever be able to answer such a question because it's more philosophical than biological. What is life? What does it mean to be conscious? Is it just chemical reactions going on in your brain or are we more than chemical reactions? Bill Nye's worldview says we're just chemical reactions, but because he's made in God's image, he can't Accept that as the answer. He knows deep down in his heart he's more than just a bundle of chemical reactions. He's more than just an animal. And yet in his worldview, he is just an animal. And so he said, we don't know. And Ken Ham said, well, there's this book. And he kept saying, there's this book. And it tells us we're made in God's image, and that's why we have consciousness. We're made in God's image. Question to Bill Nye. Bill Nye, where did the first Adam come from? He said, we don't know. We don't know. And Ken Ham said, well, we have this book. And it says, in the beginning, God created. He created matter out of nothing. Whereas the atheist worldview says, right now, the theory is that all energy and matter was already there, and for some reason it exploded into an orderly universe, which really makes no sense. But that's what they've got to work with. And so even though I felt Ken Ham didn't do the things I wanted him to accomplish, he did accomplish what he set out to do. And CNN, of all people, wrapped up the debate with this statement. A debate between a man who gets his knowledge from a book and a man who doesn't know. Wow, if CNN says that, then maybe Ken did better than, than we all thought. And really, that's what it comes down to. And that's where we start the lesson today. Because if man starts from his own reason, if man starts with his own reason, then we're going to come to the conclusion that we're better people than we really are, that we deserve more than we really get. And yet the Bible reveals to us that we're far worse than we really are, and we deserve punishment and condemnation. And yet the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when viewed biblically, life is, wow, wow, I deserve hell, I get heaven. I deserve condemnation, I get justification. I deserve to be cast into outer darkness, I get to live in the light for all eternity. As one of my seminary professors said to me once when he was down in the dumps and not happy with the way ministry was going, his wife finally cheered him up by saying to him, Honey, cheer up. You're not going to hell. <laughs> be happy. Be joyful. So, and when we think about it, this is exactly how man was tempted in the garden to not listen to God's revelation 
but to decide for himself who he is, what is right and wrong, what is the meaning of life, to eliminate God's revelation from the equation. But if we're going to start with ourself, we're going to answer all the questions incorrectly. As one writer said, it's like getting up in the morning and buttoning your shirt and missing that first button. You're never going to get it right when you get to the top of, of the shirt. So if you start with the wrong foundation, you're not going to get to the right way of living. So to live in God's kingdom, you need to see the kingdom as he sees it. And yet, the Bible's consistent testimony is that because of our fallenness, we're blind. We're blind to the way things really are. Reminds me of uh, uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, The Natural. Raise your hand for me. Any fans of The Natural? For you younger generation, you've got to see it. It's, it's about baseball, but not really. But I love baseball, so it's in my top five movies of all time. But there's Christian themes in the movie. It's a story of redemption, light, dark, temptation, and... Um, Wonderful, wonderfully uh, filmed. I love the old days. And I consider the old days the day when men wear suits everywhere they went. I just think that's cool. It's wearing a suit to a baseball game. That's just kind of neat. I don't know how they handled the summer, though. But the, the plot, without ruining the movie, and by the way, a caveat, anytime I suggest a movie from the pulpit, there's always a <laughs> disclaimer there's probably some parts of the movie that I would not recommend for children. Uh, they're certainly not Christian. Um, but Hollywood, every time they make a movie, they've got to throw in a couple of scenes that really have nothing to do with the plot, but it sells more tickets. Okay? So people will go see a movie because Kim Basinger is partially unclothed. They know that sells more tickets. It's not why I want you to see the movie. So skip the scene. Watch it with someone who's seen it before and they can skip past those parts. But the story is about a young man who is born a prodigy. He, he's a natural at baseball. He's, a, he's amazing. And his whole life is before him and he knows he's going to go on to great things. And when he's 18, he's on the train to report to his first major league team and he gets tempted by a woman dressed in black. She represents evil, darkness, temptation, Satan. He falls for temptation. She ends up shooting him, trying to kill him, but he doesn't die. But his injury now makes it so he can't play baseball. Fast forward 18 years. He's 36, but he looks like he's like 45, 50, 55. You know, he's just tired looking. And uh, he decides to give baseball another shot. And he's so good at it that he actually plays well and leads the New York Knights all the way to the championship game and yet that old injury comes back to haunt him. And we find him laying in his hospital bed, the doctor telling him, you can't play in the big game. In fact, you should never play baseball again. Wes and Tyler are like, <gasps> That's like purgatory. No baseball. No baseball. Now, for a guy who has centered his entire worldview around him being good at baseball, and that's his whole life, and that's his ticket to happiness, this is the worst news you could ever hear. No baseball. And he's laying in bed depressed, and in comes his high school sweetheart, and she's always dressed in white. She represents goodness and light and truth. 
And she says, you know, what's the matter? And he said, you know, all I wanted was to set every record in the book so that one day I could walk down the street and people would say, there goes Roy Hobbs, the best that ever was at this game. That was his heaven. That was his dream. That was what life was all about. And his expectations got shattered when he was 18, and they all just got re-shattered again at 36. So painful to see. And yet you and I are watching the movie saying, that is the most shallow (laughs) dream. And yet, who hasn't had that dream in some fashion or another? You can replace baseball with just about anything. And here in America, we replace it with the American dream. You know, I just want a house and some kids and healthy kids and lots of money and never be in need and no no, uh, disease or sickness or illness. That's all I want. Is that too much to ask? (laughs) And we get disappointed when the American dream doesn't pan out the way we think we deserve. And we don't think we're asking for too much. And so she tells him, you know, I believe we're born with two lives. For Christians, that ought to ring a bell. And he says, huh? How do you figure? And she says, there's a life you learn with and then the life you live with thereafter. And you see the light go on in his eyes. Like, this doesn't have to be the end of the story. I could have something beyond baseball. There's something else. And he's not sure what it is, but he's now having his spiritual eyes opened for the first time. That there's more to life than baseball. And beloved, that's the way it was when you and I came to Christ. We were blind. And he opened our eyes and we could see what was real, what was true. That there's more to this life than what we see. And on Tuesday night, you saw a man who's had his spiritual eyes open and a man blind as a bat. Blind as a bat. He kept saying over and over, if we do science Ken Ham's way, we'll stop making inventions and discoveries. And Ken Ham introduced us to five scientists who are Christians, believe in creationism and a young earth. One of them invented the MRI machine. Another invented the hinge on an arm, on a satellite. And... They said, we're Christians. We believe in creation and we believe in a young earth and it doesn't stop us from making inventions and discoveries. And, and yet Bill and I kept trotting that out over and over and over again. You could really see a man who knew God and a man whose God was science. Really, his God was his own wisdom, his own intelligence. Bill and I is his own God. So let's... Just quickly go through the story, and God's going to show us that we need our spiritual eyes open, and He's going to humble us by teaching it to us from a blind man. The blind, in this case, see better than the seeing in this story. I'll break the story into four parts. Part one, we'll call an unassuming request. Part two, an unreasonable rebuke. Part three, an unrelenting reaction. And part four, an unexpected response. Yes, I've returned to the alliterated sermon outline. People were happy with that last week. They taught me to do it in seminary, and I stopped doing it because I don't know why. (laughs) But if it works, run with it. 
The hard thing about an alliterated sermon outline is you run out of synonyms that start with the same letter. So I really wanted to say a humble request, but I needed either a bunch of words that started with H. So I hit the thesaurus button when you right-click on Microsoft Word. And uh, there's really not that many words in the English language for humble. What does that tell you about us? (laughs) I mean, try to come up with some words for humble. In fact, in Paul's day, there wasn't really a good word for humble. Greek and Roman culture looked down on humility. It was not a virtue to be humble. It's not a virtue to be humble. So Paul made up this word. He put two words together, low of mind. Low of mind. To think low of oneself. That's hard to do. We don't naturally think low of ourselves. Oh, you can say you do, but let's be honest. Even when we say we're low in mind, we brag about being low in mind. (laughs) It's pretty hard to escape pride Praise God, we'll escape it completely when we're glorified. But it's the one thing that, the more, like, almost the harder you try to deal with it, the more it creeps up. I'm not saying don't try to fight it. But just know that you probably haven't licked it. And you're more prideful than you're willing to admit. And that's why we need our brothers and sisters in Christ and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to tell us, you haven't arrived. You haven't arrived. And so an unassuming request, unassuming is going to be my synonym for humble. He's making no assumptions about what he deserves. Unlike James and John who went straight to Jesus and said, we deserve to sit on your left and right. Rabbi, do for us whatever we ask of you. No assumptions. The only assumption this blind beggar had was, I need mercy. I need mercy. Why did this man have no assumptions about what he deserved or what he didn't deserve? You have to understand, beloved, that culture back then was much different than today. If you were blind, there was no Americans with Disability Act. The reason you were blind was because you're a sinner and you're being punished. The reason you're blind is because you're a sinner and you're being punished. The reason for all disabilities then was punishment for sin. And so if you were healthy and rich and blessed, that was proof that you were a law keeper. And if you were poor, destitute, disabled, it's your own fault. You're getting what you deserve. And so this man knew he was a sinner because he had been told his whole life he was a sinner. That was their worldview, and he was just running with the worldview. How much did he know that he was actually a sinner? I don't know. We'll get to ask him in heaven. We can ask God that question. But certainly, he came to God with low expectations. He knew Jesus was Messiah because he used the messianic title for Messiah, son of David, son of David. I mean, everyone knew Jesus was Joseph's son. He called him son of David. Messiah would be in the line of David. Son of David was a title of Messiahship. Son of David, have mercy on me. About as humble a request as you could possibly make. Think about it. 
You get in a fight with your spouse and going and saying, forgive me. Hardest words to say. I was wrong. Forgive me. To go to your children, daddy was wrong. Please forgive me. Instead of, well, if it wasn't for your behavior, I would have never have lost my temper. Okay, your behavior was wrong, but please forgive me. So hard to say, I was wrong, please forgive me. And yet we come to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. You can't come to Jesus if you can't say, I was wrong, please forgive me. He can't be your Lord if you're right all the time. And he doesn't need to be your Savior if you've done nothing wrong. So much of the world who doesn't want to come to Jesus is trapped in the worldview in their own blindness that they haven't done anything wrong and they don't need a Savior. But we are those who've had our spiritual eyes open and we realize our spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know they're bankrupt spiritually. Got nothing. I mean, honestly, no one's as bad as they could be. But that's not, that's not the deal. That's not how you get into heaven, is be better than the next guy. It's not a bell curve. It's an all-or-nothing test. And what keeps us humble after we're justified during our sanctification is daily admitting I'm not who I should be. I want to be like Christ. I'm not. Lord, have mercy on me. Every morning, Lord, have mercy on me. Throughout the day, Lord, have mercy on me. This request from this blind man should be our request all day long. I don't need my eyes fixed. I don't need them fixed. But I need my spiritual eyes fixed. I've had 2015 vision my whole life. I can see like really far away. (laughs) But I was blind spiritually until much later in life. Didn't become a Christian until after I got married. That's when I saw my condition. See, I had a, a different path than this blind beggar. Life came pretty easy to me. Pretty easy. I I always got A's in school. I was a good enough athlete that I was always the captain who picked at lunch. And um, I just figured that's the way life was for everybody and didn't know why people were complaining (laughs) so much about life. When I became a school teacher, I was like, wow, some people really struggle with math. Who knew? (laughs) Like, really struggle. Like, want to quit school. Tired of coming to a place every day to be reminded how horrible I am. Who wants, who wants that? And my heart filled with compassion for those kids. Those kids. <laughs> the blind beggars in my math class. <laughs> Throw me a C, a D. I'll take anything. Just get me out of here. When you're told your whole life that you're a good kid and the kind of kid we want kids to be like, it's hard to see your spiritual poverty. It takes the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart and see the wickedness, the pride, the jealousy, the envy. 
everything that's in there that we don't really want to admit is in there, to beg for mercy. You know, think about other stories in the Gospel where God has contrasted those who think they deserve something next to somebody who knows they don't deserve anything. The paralytic lowered through the roof. I mean, he needed his friends to take him to Jesus. He couldn't get there on his own. And yet I believe that was a Sabbath healing and the Pharisees were upset. In fact, most of Jesus' healings he did on the Sabbath just to get under their skin. Pharisees, we deserve, if God's going to send his prophet, his Messiah, the first people he ought to come to is us. We're the holy ones, the righteous ones, the teachers. In fact, they had so elevated themselves in their minds that they often were trying to teach Jesus a thing or two about God. Beloved, you and I have done that. Well, we haven't come right out and said it, but in our hearts... God, I know you're God, but let me, let me tell you something. I think you got this one wrong. Paul says, quoting from the Old Testament, who is God's counselor? What can you tell God that he doesn't already know? What do we have to teach God? He is the source of all truth and knowledge. He doesn't need a teacher. Remember the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was demonized and she went to Jesus for a healing and and Jesus said, well, you know, you're not a Jew. This blessing's for the Jews. And she said, yeah, but even, even the dogs wait under the master's table for a crumb. How is that for humility? I just want a crumb. I'm a dog. I deserve nothing. I deserve to be kicked out into the cold. But at least a crumb off the table. That's all I'm asking. And uh, Jesus has mercy on her and heals her daughter. Contrast that with the 5,000 who came and were fed and came back the next day and said, yeah, well, Moses fed our forefathers every day for 40 years. We want at least that. No one said thank you for the free lunch. Remember when they brought little children to Jesus? What do they have to offer Jesus? Crying, tantrums, runny noses. But all children have to offer us is their, their cuteness. So glad God made babies cute. Could you imagine if they weren't? Man, they'd have no chance. No chance. And one... Passage later, the rich young ruler. I've got everything. I'm rich. I'm good looking. I'm young. I'm put in charge of things. I've kept the law my whole life. When he asked Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? He wasn't really asking, what do I need to do to be saved? He was already certain he was saved. It was more a rhetorical question. Because when Jesus gave him the answer, you could see his expectations were shattered. He had to admit he was an ugly, destitute beggar. And he wasn't. That was his identity. 
So Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I don't know what kind of upbringing you had, beloved, if you felt pretty good about yourself growing up. But you realize that to come to Jesus, you're going to have to see yourself the way he sees you. But here's the good news. He sees you better than you see yourself and died for you anyways. Don't be afraid to admit who you really are. God already knows and loved you in spite of you. That's the good news of the gospel. And then that keeps us humble and sanctified. Boy, if that kind of God loves me and I'm this kind of person, then I can be honest about where I need to repent and improve. I can go to my brothers and sisters and not be afraid what they have to say about me. Let me have it. Be honest. Don't hold back. Ouch. You know. We need our brothers and sisters to let us know. We need our spouses and and children to let us know who we really are. They see us better than we see ourselves. And then we have Bartimaeus and James and John. There's the contrast again. Somebody who knew he deserved nothing. Two guys who thought they deserved everything. What a contrast. Where are you finding yourself this morning? Really, where do you find yourself every minute of the day? Are you James and John or Bartimaeus? Though everything in your heart tells you that you'll be happier as James and John, Jesus says you'll be happier as Bartimaeus. Expect nothing, get everything. Expect everything, get nothing. Those who lose their life will find it. Those who demand life end up losing it. Part two, an unreasonable rebuke. What did the crowd say to this poor blind beggar? The Bible says, sternly told him to be quiet. In today's vernacular, shut up! Shut up! Someone shut that guy up. You know, You don't deserve to speak. Just stay on the side of the road and get out of the way. I don't even like that you're here. At best, we just tolerate your presence. Go beg somewhere else. Bartimaeus had positioned himself on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem because everybody would be going that way for Passover. It's a good, good place if you're a beggar. Lots of potential... But he positioned himself there because he had heard about Jesus the Nazarene and knew he was Messiah. And this was his one shot. He'd lived in this kingdom his whole life. And it wasn't a pretty life. And in essence, when he was crying out to Jesus for mercy, he was saying, is there a place for a guy like me in your kingdom? Because there's no place for me in this one. Got nothing to lose. Have you gotten to that place in your life where there's just nowhere to go? Nothing left to lose. End of your rope. Crying out for mercy. Lord, if you don't intervene, then what's the point? I don't know how the Bill Nye's of the world get up each day and function. What's the point? And Ken Ham told him in the debate, what happens after you die? 
All your discoveries, you won't even know you made them. And all your friends, they'll be dead too. What's, what's the point? Why would you want to know truth if you're just going to die and be worm food? Honest question. What would be the point if God could not save? Where would we be? And so Bartimaeus was at that place. This is my only shot. My only hope. And yet, because of his life circumstances, he was there. Beloved, your life circumstances may not have put you in that place where you, where you realize you've got no other shot. But God will reveal to, you, reveal to you through pages of Scripture that that is our true situation in life. We are Bartimaeus, spiritually. I don't care what your socioeconomic position is, what kind of happy life you're, you're leading. Spiritually, without Christ, we're Bartimaeus. So open your eyes and see your situation and cry out for mercy. Can you believe this world Bartimaeus uh, lived in? In John chapter 9, we meet another blind man, but we find out he was blind from birth. And the disciples see this man that everyone knew had been blind and was blind. And asked Jesus, what about this guy here? Did his parents sin or did he sin? See their worldview? Somebody sinned. Now, think about that question for a minute. If he was blind from birth, did he have time to sin? No, so his parents must have sinned. So we're worshiping a God who punishes parents by making their children blind. According to Pharisaic theology. Well, they're the Pharisees and they know and we we should just listen. But I think the common man would be like, I don't know if I want to worship this God. I mean, it's easy for you to worship them, Pharisees, because you're not blind. You're not disabled. You're not poor. But what about the rest of us? Now, their theology wasn't completely off. Sin has brought a curse on the earth. Disease and the consequences of the fall we all suffer from. And sometimes our actual sins do bring a natural consequence. Right? In fact, when all my children were born, they put this medicine on our children's eyes because lots of people out there have venereal disease and when the baby passes through the birth canal... They can pick up infection. So things like syphilis and gonorrhea cause blindness in, in babies. Of course, all our babies were born by C-section, so I guess they were putting the medicine on anyways. You know, But that's the kind of world we live in. So yes, could a baby be born blind because their parents sinned? Yes. Is that what God does all the time? Is that the explanation for everybody's sin? No. No, when you see somebody suffering, it doesn't necessarily mean they sinned. And certainly when you see a child suffering, it doesn't always mean their parents sinned, although many children in the foster system are suffering because of their parents' sin. But sometimes parents die, and the children are left orphaned, and that wasn't their fault. 
It wasn't a direct sin that caused their parents to die. And so there's evil and suffering in this world, and it's hard for us to reconcile. But, beloved, we've lived in a country that has been blessed by 2,000 years of Christian teaching through Western culture. We treat the weak with compassion, or we should. If we were there that day and we heard the crowd tell this blind man to be quiet, we would be appalled. We would, we would probably intervene, would we not? And yet there's places all over the world where this goes on, where Christianity has not touched or touched so long ago that Christian principles no longer dominate society. Our team that went to Romania. Right, Jacob? Didn't go to Romania? Did go to Romania? Poland. Thank you. Poland. The disabled were cursed spiritually. Right? Or is that Romania? That's Romania. Okay. The disabled were cursed spiritually, and so they were outcasts in society. People didn't want to go near the disabled. And often would spit on them and reject them and want them far away. In Leviticus 19.14, God writes in the Mosaic Law, Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before a blind man. Sometimes you read verses in the Bible and you're like, why is that even in there? I mean, who would do that? People would do that. God never commands us to do something we do naturally on our own, and He never forbids us to do something that we're not tempted to do. Otherwise, it's a waste of paper. You know, it's, a, it's a waste of... Why would you need to tell someone to do that? It's a general rule. Someone's going to come up to me and think of, of one. Because you're that guy who's always looking for the exception. So apparently people would put a stumbling block in front of the blind just to laugh at them trip. Hey, watch this. This will be funny. Hey, let's insult this deaf guy behind his back. He'll never know. And God has taken that idea of the stumbling block and carried it through the the whole Old Testament and New, and it's become euphemistic for somebody who's getting in the way of people coming to God. And so, beloved, I contend to you this morning that there are spiritual blind trying to get to God and sometimes the seeing, us, put stumbling blocks in front of people. Sometimes it's unintentional. But we expect our kids to be perfect. And we get mad when they're not perfect because I told you a hundred times not to do it. Why do you keep doing it? Uh... Because they're sinners and they need the gospel, remember? And yet we keep them from Jesus because we want to teach moralism and behaviorism to them. We get uncomfortable about unbelievers when they come into church because they don't look right, talk right, dress right, act right. You know, they're going to rub off on our kids, and we can't have that. And so we put a stumbling block right in the front door of the church. Now, if you're a believer and you're being sanctified and growing in grace, we should expect you to be maturing. And if you don't want to mature, that's a different story. Now we need to talk. 
But let's not put stumbling blocks in front of the unbelievers. And certainly don't put stumbling blocks in front of new believers. It takes a long time to get spiritually mature. We need to be patient and gracious with one another. And even the spiritually mature, they're going to blow it sometimes. It's not a time to be appalled and so hurt that you have to either sit on the other side of church or leave. It's a time for grace and mercy and to sit down and confront one another in love and work through it. So I ask you to look through your life today as you go home and see where maybe you're a stumbling block. You're putting a stumbling block in front of the spiritually blind at at home, at work, even here in the church. Part three, an unrelenting reaction. Did the blind man shut up? He cried out even louder. This is the heart that cries out for mercy. It's the one who will not be satisfied until they get mercy from God. When you're spiritually hungry, you're not satisfied until you feed from Christ. When you're spiritually thirsty, you're not satisfied till you drink from the living waters. See, this guy didn't care anymore about the crowd. He's long past people-pleasing. <laughs> He's long past fear of man. Sometimes we're afraid to cry out to Jesus in mercy because we'll be embarrassed at work. Oh, you're a Christian? You guys aren't very intellectual. You know, and so we kind of hide. Maybe you have unsaved family members who, if you're vocal about your Christianity, you're a Jesus freak. You can proudly say, yes, I am. Like Paul, I'm a fool for Christ's sake. Rather have the world call me a fool than God call me a fool. The Word says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. I know you don't say there is no God, but sometimes we live like there is no God because we're worried about the crowd. This man was not worried about the crowd. He yelled out even louder. Like the parable of the publican and the Pharisee, a publican's a tax collector, they both went to the temple to pray to God, and the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner over here. And the sinner cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Cried out, beat his breast, the Bible said, repeatedly, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. It was his heart cry. It was his daily cry. It was his worldview. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, that man went home justified. Not the other man who didn't think he was blind and destitute. So keep crying out. I, I know you can remember the day you cried out to the Lord and he saved you. And yet if you're stalled in your sanctification and your walk with Christ, I can almost guarantee it's because you're seeing the world not the way God sees it. You've gone back to being the person who doesn't think they're spiritually bankrupt. You think you deserve better than what you're getting. 
you've got to always go back to that place where you realize, no, I'm blind, destitute, beggar. I need God's mercy. It's a whole different outlook. Whole different outlook. You walk through the day expecting very little and God just blessing your socks off. (laughs) I love those people. I can learn from those people. I like to be around those people. They convict me and they help me mature. How can she be so happy? Does she really know the life she has? (laughs) Yes, she does. And she's just thrilled. That guy's pie in the sky happy. No, he's not. He's got a real view of what's going on. That's what we need, beloved. Well, to close, part four, an unexpected response. Jesus, marching to Jerusalem for the Passover. Next passage in Mark, the triumphal entry. His coronation day, his inauguration day. In the church I grew up in, in the Lutheran church, we called it Christ the King Sunday, and we actually cut down palm branches, and it was a big to-do. I had no idea what was going on. Spiritually blind. But I remember the palm branches. And he stops his entire procession. The greatest man in Israel at this time, the most popular, the most respected, the most fascinating, the most intriguing. I don't care what you thought about him, but Jesus was the man. And Bartimaeus could not have been any smaller, any more lowly, any more insignificant on that road. And he stopped to listen to the one man who knew he needed mercy. And I love that Jesus didn't walk over and grab him. I mean, he's blind and he says, hey, come over here. You know, like, you're like, that's kind of rude. <laughs> like, you can't see where you are. But you know, it says, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They come when I call. And he got up and he, he came to Jesus And isn't it absolutely amazing? I mean, it's just, I know the Bible's true, but sometimes I need help really believing it's true. That Jesus would ask with the exact same words, Bartimaeus, what he said to James and John. Completely different context, same question. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? If you have a spear of I deserve, then you say, let us sit on your left and right. If you have a spirit of I deserve, like the rich young ruler, it's tell me I'm in the kingdom. I already know I'm in the kingdom. Let everyone around here know I'm in the kingdom. Yet if you have the spirit of Bartimaeus, you don't expect much. I I just want to see. I want to be rich. I don't want to be popular. I just want to see. Just want to see what was wrapped up in that. I don't know. I can't read his mind. Sometimes you kind of have to fill in the blanks. Did he want to just see or did did he want more? Well, we know when he got his sight back, what did he do? What's it say? He followed Jesus. 
For how long did he follow Jesus? Did he follow him to the cross and then find out, oh, the guy's not setting up the kind of kingdom I wanted and then, and then leave? No, I believe he followed him all the way. Because there were two men that day, we find out in a parallel gospel account, there were two blind beggars. But we only learn the name of Bartimaeus. I think, and this is just me hypothesizing here, that Bartimaeus became part of the early church. He was that guy in church who always has to tell his testimony. Testimony guy, you know? He just loves what the Lord has done for him. I got I to tell people. You know, Bartimaeus, part of the early church, by the way, Bartimaeus just means son of Timaeus. You put bar in front of a name in, in Hebrew or Aramaic, and it means son of. So this guy didn't even go by his first name. He was just son of Timaeus. Bartimaeus, now we know his story, how he became a follower of Christ, how he regained his sight. I think we'll meet Bartimaeus in heaven, and he'll still be telling the story of the day God had mercy on him. You know, ironically, Bartimaeus had his sight restored before he had his sight restored. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Not seen. He was hoping for the kind of kingdom where a guy like him would have a place. Whereas James and John were hoping for a kind of kingdom where guys like them should have a place. Yeah, I see the difference. I have no place in this pulpit. But because of that attitude, God says, I'm going to let you teach my word. And he's taken a long time to get my heart attitude in that place. And i got to admit to you, there's days where you forget and you think you deserve to be here. I deserve to be in God's family. And then he humbles you again. And it's at that place of humility that you love him most and want to follow him most. And you're the most good to him in the kingdom. So there were thousands of seeing people there that day following Jesus, eager to be part of the kingdom. They thought he was on his way to build, but there was one blind man on the side of the road who was able to see Jesus for who he really was and what he was offering. You must see the kingdom as God sees it in order to enter it get saved, and to enjoy it now. This is a sermon on justification and sanctification. You, you must see the kingdom as God sees it to get saved. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And to enjoy the kingdom now, you have to live with the same eyes. It's not once you get saved, it's health, wealth, and prosperity. It's struggling, Suffering, persecution, but lots of good stuff too. And in fact, those things Jesus said, they're the good stuff too. 
It's how we grow. It's how we're more dependent on Him. Don't you want to be closer to Jesus? Then trust Him. This is how it works in His kingdom. One day, we won't have to suffer and strive anymore. We'll, we'll be in perfection and glory. The Bible says, for a little while, for a little while, you suffer. So, I call you to remember the day when you were just a nobody on the side of the road. And you cried out for mercy and God called you and said, come here. You opened your spiritual eyes. And I also call you today to remember what His kingdom right now is supposed to look like so you can enjoy it and be a wonderful testimony to the world. We're not those who complain and grumble. We're those who give thanks and praise and are forever grateful. We're getting far more than we deserve. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father God, we are but blind, penniless beggars. And we confess to you that even as your children, we're tempted to be disappointed with how life turns out. Forgive us. Wipe the fog off our glasses, so to speak. So we can see the pages of Scripture clearly and know that this is an already but not yet kingdom. There's great glory to come, but you must drink the cup before the glory. And so keep us humble. Keep us humble with open hands willing to receive whatever you've ordained for us. Make us the most cheerful, joyful, happy, thankful people this world has ever seen. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.